You're listening to Office Hours, a series of curious conversations with Belfer Center experts. We sat down with Steve Walt, the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at the Kennedy School. We talked about everything from Spider-Man to ISIS. So I just want to dive right in and get our hands a little dirty. Can we do that? Go right ahead. Okay. It's your show. Okay. So you write a lot about perception of threat and threats we face, and and you say that what we see uh, as a threat usually is very exaggerated. It's overblown most of the time. And so I thought if if you're not afraid of ISIS and Korea and uh, North Korea and Iran and China and Russia and the threatened euro, what what are you afraid of? What like your phobias just in real life? I'm afraid of I'm definitely afraid of deep water because it reminds me of outer space. So um, what are you not very many things. I'm a, oh, really? I think a pretty rational person and very fatalistic, not afraid to fly, you know, not afraid to right. uh, do a variety of things. Uh, and I think, you know, we can calculate risks uh, reasonably well. I'm not a huge fan of squirrels. <laughs> squirrels. <laughs> but I'm not afraid of them. I just don't like them very much. And is it because they're so frenetic? No, I just don't like them because they dig up my garden. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So it's less of a fear, more of a, just a strong, yeah, strong dislike. Right. Okay. What are the squirrels of international relations? <laughs> what are the things that you really think we legitimately should should fear or should should be worried about? Well, we don't it, exaggerate. It depends, obviously, who we are. If we think of it's the United States, there's not that many dangers the United States faces that are really all that significant. And the main reason we exaggerate them is that we have a whole industry that's designed to scare us as much as possible. Who, who are those? Who are these uh, most of the foreign policy establishment, and certainly much of the American media now. I mean, how does CNN or how does Fox get people to turn on the TV and leave it on all day by telling you that there's some horrible danger out there that you really have to pay attention to, that there's something happening 14,000 miles away that's really, really important because it really could threaten Americans in Kansas City. And that's the way you get people to, to keep watching. And unfortunately, if people don't know the broader context, don't have a sense of what baseline risks really look like, they're going to be... Uh, inclined to exaggerate those dangers. Is it just the media? Or are there politicians involved? What's oh, Of course there are politicians yeah. involved. And there's think tanks in Washington. Um, and the whole, I think, much of the foreign policy machinery is um, tends to exaggerate dangers, partly because it's a way of giving themselves something to do. It's, to a, full papers, em- yeah. it's a full employment policy for the <clears throat> um, you know, national security world. But also because for many politicians... The political consequences of anything bad happening on their watch are so enormous. Mm-hmm. I think that we've seen this in spades ever since 9-11, right? This deathly fear that some additional terrorist attack might take place while you're in office leads people to devote far more effort and attention to preventing them than the risk actually warrants. Are there any risks and threats you think don't get enough airtime? Or do you think the media does a pretty good job? It all out. Um, what's, what's, what are we missing here? What's... For, for the United States, I think okay. that the, uh, the greatest danger we've faced for years has been internal problems, okay. right? That we are uh, likely to be both less secure and live less well mm-hmm. if we don't have an economy that's working well, if we have a system of primary and secondary uh, education that's not absolutely world class, um, that we can cause lots of problems for ourselves. You know, more Americans die from handgun deaths uh, in the United States than die as a result of international terrorism. Yet we don't do anything about 
the former and we spend billions of dollars trying to make an already very small risk even smaller. What doesn't make you scared of Russia? Why are you not why is that something you don't fear? Uh, uh, I don't, I'm not worried about Russia for several reasons. Russia, in my view, is a declining power. Uh, its population is aging. It's not going to grow. Uh, it has uh, an uncompetitive economy, which depends in, almost entirely on primary products, mostly mm -hmm. oil and gas. It uh, doesn't have substantial power projection capabilities any longer. It's not a global military power. Um, it does have nuclear weapons, but its nuclear weapons uh, are deterred by ours and by the nuclear weapons of many others. Russia can cause some trouble in areas close to its own borders, and it has a diplomatic role that we have to, I think, take into account. But the idea that Russia poses some mortal threat to American interests or even to the interests of our closest allies, I think, is overstating it. You're a Harvard professor. Why does Putin take off his shirt all the time? Is that, <laughs> is that something we well, should know the, We can't rule that. out the possibility. Maybe he's just hot. You think he's just hot? <laughs> he's just hot in Russia? I don't know why he's so fond of taking off his shirt. I think it's um, his version of showing sort of strong, right. virile leadership. But you notice we do the same thing in slightly different ways here in the United States. Back when Reagan was president, they used to film him clearing brush at his ranch as a way of showing how vigorous he was. With George Bush, it was showing him, you know, getting on the bike and, and working out with Barack Obama. It's showing him shooting hoops in the gym, etc. We find different They're leaders... Just different ways that we... Different leaders look for ways to show how energetic, strong, and are. vigorous they are. So you don't think that's something that we should be worried about, that this specific leader might... Uh, I, I think his, uh, his fondness for showing his torso doesn't tell you very much about his foreign policy okay. behavior. What about China? China is a potential long-term peer competitor for the United States, given its uh, size, uh, size of its economy, uh, its ambitions, mm -hmm. I think, in Asia, the fact that what it would like to do in Asia and what we would like to preserve in Asia are, in my view, uh, fundamentally incompatible. We would like to remain a major security presence yes. in Asia, and I think China would like us to be out of Asia as a security presence. So that's a source of friction. And if you ask me what I think the sort of principal rivalry that mm -hmm. sh will shape world I'll ask politics... I'll that question. What is the principal rivalry? It's going to be the American rivalry with China over the next 10 or 20 years, assuming China continues to grow economically and continues to increase its power which is not a, an absolute sure thing, but I think is likely. Is it, is it inevitable then, if you said we have fundamental differences, is it inevitable that we will go to war with China? No, no. We were you know, bitter rivals with the Soviet Union for at least 40 years, if not longer. Sure. And we never went to war with them. In fact, we went to great lengths to try and avoid a direct military clash. But they weren't rising as much as China. I mean, isn't, weren't they well, were... we thought they were. Remember in the 1950s, Khrushchev said that, you know, they were going to bury us and Soviet economic growth in the 1950s was substantially greater than ours. So we worried about it. It was a continent-sized superpower, more people than we had. It did have an ideology which mm -hmm. attracted supporters in many parts of the world. So we took it seriously, and I think correctly so. China, of yes. course, has much more latent potential than the Soviet Union ever did. The Soviet Union never had an economy as big as ours, and China either does already or will relatively soon. So I think it's a more formidable rival in certain respects. But that doesn't mean we necessarily go to war with them. I think there'll be a pretty intense security competition yes. with them, and that creates the risk of war. But uh, certainty, absolutely not. Why do they care so much about these rocks? 
it's you're, you're referring to say the various shoals and reefs in the yes. South China Sea. Right. It's not the rocks themselves okay. uh, that trying to build up the rocks, establish their own territorial claim. There, I think, is part of a long-term uh, effort to establish Chinese control over that particular waterway. The United States, of course, and all of the other countries mm -hmm. who border the South China Sea would like to maintain uh, freedom of navigation in that region sure. for both economic and also for security reasons. It just seems like one little small step, it's another little small step, and China will be taking increasingly small steps toward... I th you think that's that, a and this fair... Is a, and this is a huge diplomatic challenge for the <clears throat> United States because it's the old problem of salami tactics. If someone is taking just a tiny bite Slice. each time, okay. at what point do you say, stop, you can't have any more? Absolutely salami not. Right? And I'm willing to try and take the salami away. I'm willing yes. to really wrestle with you on this next one. Yes. Right? That's very difficult to do um, if the steps are small enough and if you're distracted with lots of other problems, which tends to be the American condition. And ISIS, an overblown threat? Yes. Why is that? Um, because it's a very weak uh, organization. It's strong by the standards of a terrorist group, but it's very weak compared to other states. Uh, the, the sort of economy yeah. of the area that ISIS controls sure. is maybe $5 billion a year or so. And it, $5 billion puts it on a par with Eritrea, on a par with Guyana, on a par, a par with Barbados. This is a very weak state. Aren't we in the age of non-state threats? I mean, 19 members of al-Qaeda right. causing, what, $170 billion worth of damage. ISIS is somewhere around 20,000 people. No, more, probably more than that, real fighters. But Sure. So is that something that disproportionately these individuals can have a much greater effect than they could have, say, 50 or 60 years ago? Um, I think that's probably true, but even their individuals cannot do that much. Uh, what happened 9-11 was tragic, but it didn't alter America's way of life. It didn't bring down the U.S. government, um, and it was a very lucky shot, which we've been able to take many steps to prevent from being uh, duplicated. Um, so far... Outside the area that ISIS controls in the last two years, attacks associated in some way with ISIS, either inspired or claimed or you know, some indirect uh, connection, have killed maybe 500 people worldwide. But do you think that's because it, we're spending so much I mean, money no, on counterterrorism no, that we're able to prevent these attacks? I think it's because these groups are not that capable. They're not that powerful. They're not able to do that. But they can cause... A, uh, every now and then. Every now and then they can do admittedly brutal and heinous things, right? They can blow up, uh, you know, a, a hotel. They can uh, have people shot on a beach, as it happened. Um, but that's very different than being able to spread like wildfire, yeah. very different than being able to topple other governments. And in that same period, by the way, where 500 people worldwide outside of ISIS's area were killed by ISIS-related events, in that same period, about 15,000 Americans were murdered with handguns. So what's the real threat here? Right. About a decade ago, in an interview, you referred to the United States as an 800-pound gorilla. Right. How much do we weigh today? Are we, are we on soul cycle? We well, lost a little weight? Are we bigger? What have we been doing? Are we yeah. eating a lot? Well, the United States is still the most powerful country in the world by you know, so I think almost any uh, significant measure. Uh, China may have a slightly larger economy. The United States economy is more diverse, more sophisticated, etc. Our military forces are still vastly stronger than anybody else's. And we are in this extraordinarily favorable 
geographic position, no enemies anywhere nearby, and that's mm -hmm. a huge advantage uh, as well. So the United States is still the 800-pound gorilla. I'd put, you know, China somewhere around 450 pounds. They're but, still a primate, though. And, and, no. but, but, but growing, and everybody else is, is much lower. I mean, I think, as I suggested before, China has the potential, if everything goes right, if they make a lot of the right decisions and they get lucky and things like that, to maybe be someday the 1,200-pound gorilla, oh. <clears throat> given its population, uh, given, I think, a, a lot of the uh, potential that they have. But they're not there yet, and I don't think they'll be there in my lifetime. How much does Russia weigh? Uh, on this metric, you know, 100 pounds. Canada? 12, 15, 12, 12, 15 20. 15. Do you like comic books? Yeah, I used to when I was. Who's your favorite superhero? Uh, you know, I don't pay close attention to it. I did have a certain sort of fondness for Spider-Man back when I was a teenager. Why did you? Why did you like him? So much? I don't know. Because he was a teenager, and and the whole the whole narrative is all about you know this this kid with magical powers who right. nonetheless has all the same problems with his you know teachers, with his boss, with his girlfriend, etc. He so, struck me as one of the most tormented of the superheroes. You, of course. You, but I also feel like I could relate to him because I thought if there was any superpower I could get, much easier to just have let a spider bite me. It's interesting. The superpowers, what's interesting about uh, superheroes in general, and yeah. I haven't followed you know, the, sort of the most recent wave of it uh, very much, but they all, or most of the classic ones, all have a sort of, you know, uh, patience, forbearance. You don't, you don't see most superheroes engaging in preventive strikes or preemptive strikes. It's always the bad guys. The reactive. Who do the They're yeah. reactive. They are slow to anger. Um, they, they always win in the end, of yeah. course. Right? That's part of the narrative. But they are never the ones who, who strike first. Right. And you could argue that that's uh, you know, part of the sort of myth of, of the hero. The heroes are not supposed to be the ones who are causing the trouble. Right. They're the ones who see a problem they would prefer not to have to deal with the problem, gotta. but eventually they find they have to, but they take a deep breath and go to work. Um, and I think there's something, you know, a larger lesson in that yeah. you know, sort of prevailing narrative. Well, there's a lot of talk about America being a global policeman, policewoman, right. and kind of trying to save the world. And I wonder about the superhero uh, analogy. Have we picked, have we picked the wrong, should we be focused on Spider-Man? Have we picked the wrong superhero? Incredible Hulk sort of comes to mind when I think of, <laughs> You know, a guy who gets disproportionately angry and just leaves devastation in his wake. What would you, what kind of model should we have? Well, I'd say two things. One is uh, evil is not something, in my view, that you can eliminate, right? That the human beings are complicated and some of them are going to do things that we regard as evil. And so to set as our objective the elimination of evil in the world is to guarantee failure because I think that's an impossible goal. Okay. Um, Secondly, I think if you look at uh, recent American foreign policy, we have been insufficiently humble about our ability to manage politics in parts of the world that we don't understand very well and where our vital interests are, in fact, not fully engaged. So we have ambitions. We want to get rid of bad guys. We want to make the world safe for whatever. Mm. Um, but we don't necessarily want to invest a lot of money in it. We certainly don't want to invest a lot of lives in it. Fun, other thing is we've got to recognize that most parts of the world are probably going to be better off managing themselves than being run by Washington, D.C. We don't have a formal empire, but for many years we've really tried to shape events in almost every corner of the world. And sometimes we can do that reasonably effectively if we have 
sort of realistic goals and we use a rather gentle touch. But I think the last 20 years have taught us that, you know, trying to coerce or compel the rest of the world into sort of fitting into our model sure. uh, just generates enormous resistance and doesn't produce the outcomes we want. How do we get those outcomes that we want? How do we, uh, how do we become sort of the ideal pseudo Captain America or Mr. Fantastic or whatever? How do we become that? that person. I think the United States has to be uh, substantially more restrained in how it approaches foreign Fewer policy. bases abroad? I mean, Absolutely. Really, okay. We don't need nearly as many. Uh, or much okay. less reliance on military power, which yes. is a very crude instrument uh, and always produces unintended consequences. Um, also tends to create failed states as opposed to successful so ones. Military power versus what? So we've got, what are the other, diplomacy, yeah, economics, Diplomatic trade, engagement, we... and, and also letting many parts of the world manage themselves uh, more than we have in the past. Recognizing that, you know, for say a place like the Middle East is not an area we know how to control, we know how to manage, sure. we know how to run, and trying to do so is likely to make things worse rather than make things better. Right. So, you know, we're at a moment in world history, it seems to me, where we should not be engaging in sort of either formal or informal empire and certainly trying to avoid military intervention as much as possible. I do think we have a, a substantial role to play in Asia going forward. Yeah. But again, that's going to be more of a balance of power role sure. rather than large scale social engineering. So how do we deal with places in the Middle East right now? How do you deal with places like Yemen and and, and, and ISIS, you've talked about containing ISIS, uh, you know, if we can't totally defeat them and, and, uh, and degrade, degrade ISIS. If the regional powers are unable to do that, shouldn't we be there? Shouldn't yeah. we be There's, present in Yemen? Shouldn't we be present? Well, our, our track record in Yemen over the last 20 years has been a track record of consistent failure. Mm. Right? We've been interfering there in a variety of ways. We've been propping up this different governments. We've been allegedly going after al-Qaeda. And Yemen is in more of a mess now than it was 20 years from now. So that policy is a failure. Mm. Um, there's no evidence to suggest that ISIS is going to expand very far uh, beyond the region that it currently controls. If it started to do that, if, I, if you saw military expansion into Saudi Arabia or you know, uh, other parts of Iraq or into Iraqi Kurdistan, then the United States might uh, want to step up its efforts. But so far, there's no sign that uh, ISIS is going to do that. I think ISIS may well retain power where it currently is, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's going to expand militarily. What are, th what are three things in foreign affairs that you think most Americans... Uh, misunderstand, misperceive? Um, I think they, uh, they don't recognize the basic security that the United States has, separated from most problems by these two oceans, a large, robust, diverse economy. I, I think they don't fully understand that. So that's one. Um, second, they don't understand that the rest of the world often has a very different understanding of history than we do that all countries kind of tell themselves their own narratives. And it's not like ours is right and yours is false. It's just we emphasize different mm -hmm. things. And then third, related to that, I think Americans uh, don't fully appreciate uh, the, the diversity uh, that is global, um, which is odd given that we're... What do you mean by that? Um, the fact that the world is still, it's not one single global village, mm -hmm. um, that cultures really differ in lots of fundamental ways, that uh, people's identities, what they value, are very much tied to their own regions, their own locales, their own tr historical traditions, uh, in some cases their religious traditions as well. And 
in the United States because we're a melting pot. Yep. We sort of don't, we think everybody comes over here and in a generation or two, they all turn into Americans. Americans. And that those values that right. we are extol uni- here are really universal mm-hmm. and everybody wants to live in a liberal democracy and have uh, you know, no real political role for religion and have rule of law and have capitalism and all of that. We just think that that's what everybody else wants. How do we fix this? Do we, we travel I, more? Or what do you, what? I think people ought to read more. Uh, you read more. Yeah. People, people ought to read more. They ought Watch to read. less TV. Uh, that would always help. Uh, read more. Uh, I often tell students that one thing they should do is read uh, foreign newspapers. Don't just read the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Boston Globe, but you know, read the Financial Times, read the Economist. Go to various websites that have translations from newspapers in other parts of the world. What do you read? Um, I read. Uh, I read the Financial Times. I read the uh, Wall Street Journal. Uh, I read the New York Times. I uh, use a couple of different websites that um, that are aggregators of foreign news as well, because I want to see what you know the Asahi Shimbun is saying in Japan, and it's fascinating to watch how different events get covered in different parts of the world. We talk a little bit about academia. Sure. Now this is something that you quite famously. Uh, get angry about. <laughs> Wake up in the morning, just a little, little frustrated with academia. Right. And why? What's wrong? Um, well, I think the large and diverse academic community in the United States is a great asset. That's one of the things that, that actually is a, a strength of the country because none of us are always right and having a really lively and engaged public debate about critical issues uh, is really important. And I think academia plays a central role in that because it's the one part of that sort of intellectual sphere that's pretty independent. People in academia, particularly once we have Mm -hmm. tenure, can say whatever we want. We are effectively independent, and therefore we ought to be an independent voice in these debates. Um, We ought to, in particular, go to some lengths to try and scrutinize and evaluate Mm -hmm. and challenge the conventional wisdom. We don't. We shouldn't be spending a lot of our time chasing political power, trying to get too close to politicians, etc., because that's inevitably, I think, a corrupting process. The unique role that academia can play right. is to be an independent voice. Now, the problem is that academia has two dangers. One is the one I just mentioned. Right. You get too close to power, you get corrupted by mm. it. But the second one is the the cult of irrelevance. You spend all of your time writing books and articles that are read by 12 other people. You don't want to engage in major issues of the day because that gets you in trouble, that makes you controversial, that may make people angry. So I'll just go off here and write a bunch of narrow-minded, uh, hyper-intellectual, largely irrelevant academic stuff. And that's the other danger that right. academia can fall into. And it does. And just a bunch of wussies. We're just afraid uh, of... Yeah, or, or, you know, it's a nice, comfortable lifestyle, mm. and you can just keep yourself busy going to conferences and writing articles that hardly anybody reads. And I prefer the idea of an academic community that is serious and rigorous and really upholds high scholarly standards, but applies academic knowledge to issues that actually matter as opposed to things that are largely irrelevant. And there, it, I've, the pendulum has swung back and forth a little bit in the course of my career. There was a period, you know, 10 plus years ago where I was really worried that we were 
sort of spiraling off into political science hyperspace and didn't have much to say. I think that's begun to shift back a little bit, which is a really nice thing to see. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.